Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapters 22 and 23. Genesis, uh, we will, in the introduction, cover the last few verses of chapter 22, and then the main section will be chapter 23. Not to uh, denigrate or speak ill of this text at all, but this is one of those texts when, as a preacher, I need to be convinced that all Scripture is not only breathed out by God, but profitable for teaching, reproof, <laughs> uh, correction, training, and righteousness. Uh, as we walk through Genesis, see, that's one of the benefits, of course, of walking through books of the Bible. You can't skip stuff that easily. So um, this might not be, on the face of it, a very obviously directly applicable text, but I think there are things here for us that will point us to how we should respond to the living God. As we are continuing the account at this, at this section of Genesis, the account of Abraham and then Isaac, his son, this is still in a section which began in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 27. You recall the book of Genesis is divided up into in the Hebrew, it's called Toledot, into the generations. Uh, it, that's a section marker. It'll say, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, or these are the generations of Adam, or these are the generations of so-and-so, Shem. Uh, but this section started way back, Genesis 11, verse 27, saying, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, who's now Abraham, renamed by God, Nahor, or Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, now renamed Sarah, you recall. And the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. <laughs> well, we're still in the same section, but by now... That last statement about Sarai, now Sarah, is gloriously obsolete. Sarai, now Sarah, was barren until the time of age when she could not physically have children. But then God opened her womb in, according, uh, in accordance with his promise. Sarah bore Isaac to Abraham, and it was in Isaac that Abraham's seed, his offspring, and all the promises of God given to his offspring would be called. And that may make a little more sense, having just read the very beginning of this section from chapter 11, that may make a little more sense of verses 20 to 24, chapter 22, where we are now. Most of chapter 22 is about this supreme test of Abraham's faith when God told him to take Isaac, his only son whom he loved, and offer him as a burnt offering in the mountains of Moriah. And then God painted this beautiful portrait uh, first of all, of Abraham being willing to slay his only son on the altar, and then of that ram caught in the thicket that took Isaac's place on the altar, God painted this beautiful portrait of the gospel, of God loving the world that in such a way that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish. There would be that substitution pictured in the ram. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. But now, the last few verses of chapter 22, um, 
brings us up to date on the rest of Abraham's family that he left behind when he left Haran and came to the land, the promised land of Canaan. Let's just read those um, five verses quickly, starting in Genesis 22, verse 20. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kenuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildas, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Meekah. Why are these verses here? Well, as I said, it's uh, telling about how it was reported to Abraham, perhaps after Abraham reported that he had had a son in his old age. It's reported to Abraham that um, his brother Nahor has been having uh, children back where Abraham had left them behind, left his clan behind. And this, um, this of course, prepares us for what comes very soon in chapter 24, when Isaac needs a bride. And eventually, Rebekah, from this line, will be Isaac's bride. Moses seems to insert that mention of Rebekah here to prepare us for her marriage to Isaac, chapter 24. See in parentheses there, verse 23, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Otherwise, it's just a list of the male children, but it seems like Moses inserts that Bethuel was the father of Rebekah. Um, it mentions... Now, you know, commentators are supposed to comment, so they always have comments, and uh, they have ideas about the importance of Nahor's descendants. Uh, notice Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother. Uh, those may or may not be related to the, to the lands um, mentioned in the book of Job. Job lived in the land called Uz, and Job's acquaintance, Elihu, lived in Buzz, <laughs> So maybe there's a relationship there. It's not that important for our purposes today. Um, there's more we could say here, but uh, basically it's just catching us up. These are still the generations of Terah, what became of his family. Um, I will make one note, though, uh, because it mentions a concubine of Mehor, Ruma. Um, what is a concubine? Well... We've seen this already. Hagar was a concubine of sorts to Abraham. And Genesis 25 will say that Abraham later had another concubine named Keturah. And what is a concubine? Well, it's a second-level wife in that day who was acquired without the payment of a bride price. And uh, sometimes the concubine may have originally been a slave. A concubine had fewer legal privileges than ordinary wives, and I'm quoting largely here from Andrew Steinman. And the, later, the law of Moses later gave even concubines certain rights. But when you see that concept of a concubine, you may not immediately know what that's talking about. So it's a convenient place to just mention it. It's a second-level wife, and, and that concept will come up again and again in Genesis in the storyline. So it's important to understand what that is. Having covered those verses, we get to our main text for today, which is Genesis 23. It's 20 verses. And the big idea in Genesis 23 is that Abraham's burial of Sarah revealed his faith in God's promises. 
Abraham's burial of Sarah revealed his faith in God's promises. So let's explain chapter 23. Uh, We'll read it, then explain it, and then apply it. But notice, from the big idea I already stated, Abraham's burial of Sarah, this means Sarah died. That's how we begin verse, or chapter 23. Let's read starting in verse 1 of chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us, or in the original language, that could be just an expression for a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named, in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So I'll restate the big idea. Abraham's burial of Sarah revealed his faith in God's promises. So what's what's the explanation of chapter 23? Well, I've divided it up into three simple sections. First, Abraham mourns Sarah's death. Then the largest section is the whole account of Abraham purchasing a cave as his family tomb. And then finally, we see that Abraham buries Sarah in the cave. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Let's work through it to be sure we understand as many of the details as would might be helpful, and then we'll apply it. Verse 1 says that Sarah lived 127 years. 
Remember, she had uh, been rejuvenated in such a way at 90 years of age to bear Isaac. But about 37 years after Isaac's birth, she died. All people die, even Sarah, the mother of the promised seed. Verse 2 says, Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So Abraham, again, it's, um, it's just obvious, Abraham is still a sojourner. He doesn't always stay put in one place. He doesn't have a permanent home in the land. God's promised to him this land, but he keeps having to move around through his life. Uh, last time we saw him further south near Beersheba. Now he's back further, still in the south, but further north uh, in what was later the country of Judah, uh, many years later. Uh, now he's near Hebron. He's been moving around, and here's where Sarah died. And it says, And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. This wasn't simply or only an expression of Abraham's own heartfelt grief though certainly it must have been. But in that culture, it was an expectation, an absolute expectation, a requirement. Uh, It was the proper thing to do to publicly mourn and to have that be a very visible aspect um, of your life for several days. He went in to conduct, you could say, to conduct the mourning and weeping for Sarah. So Abraham mourns Sarah's death, verses 1 through 2. Then verses 3 through 16, Abraham purchases a cave as his family tomb. It's on this occasion that Abraham decides, uh, or at least least lets it be known, that he needs a burial plot, as it were, uh, for his family. And not just for Sarah, but for succeeding generations. Verse 3, Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, or the sons of Heth, I am, who was, who was a descendant of Canaan, so they are, there, they are Canaanites in the land. He said to them, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place or a plot that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Again, that Hebrew term for burying place uh, often bears the idea of a, of a possession that includes future inheritance. It's not just a one-time thing, a one-time burial place. What do the Hittites respond? Well, they, they respond um, very respectfully in that culture. And as, as, you, as we read this as Westerners, and modern Westerners at that, <laughs> uh, this seems very foreign to us, or at least it should. This isn't how we usually conduct business. Uh, wording things in such a roundabout way, uh, including what we might see as flattery, you know, um, we might think, oh, he's buttering him up so he can get a better, better price or whatnot. But this is the way business was conducted and how people spoke in these formal affairs. Uh, so there, there's a lot of um, cultural stuff going on here. The Hittites say, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. A lot of scholars think that what's actually happening here is they're, they're flattering Abraham, they're, they're speaking well of him, and at the same time, they're kind of reluctant to allow Abraham to get to acquire a permanent possession among them. 
They are the people of the land, as it keeps repeating here. They are the the uh, people who belong here. Abraham does not belong here. He's a sojourner. He doesn't have all the rights of citizenship. So they may be saying, look, we'll let you use one of our tombs to bury Sarah, um, because we respect you. <laughs> but they may be actually expressing reluctance, demonstrating reluctance to... Uh, give Abraham actually a piece of property among them. But that wouldn't work for Abraham because then he couldn't be guaranteed permanent access to this site in the future if that happened. Um, as Derek Kidner says, the flattery in verse 6 was an inducement to remain a landless dependent. Um, but then, as we'll see, Abraham... Uh, comes back by naming an individual. Uh, I, I want to deal with this particular man among you. And as Kidner says, that makes skillful use of the fact that while a group tends to resent an intruder, the owner of an asset may welcome a customer. Um, it's easy easier for a group to refuse, but if you're making a specific offer to a specific person, you might get farther. So verse 7, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, you see him rising and bowing all through here, expressing his respect for them as the people who belong here. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar. We'll find out Ephron's probably just sitting there listening to this. <laughs> but he's entreating the group to intercede for him with uh, Ephron, the son of Zohar. Abraham says that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So as, a, as an alien, as a foreigner, Abraham uh, needs an intermediary for the buying of property. So he asks the group to speak to, to Ephron, as it were, though he's right there um, at the city gate. And, um, and this is being done all, all on the up and up in front of everyone. Abraham expresses the fact that this will be in front of everyone at the city gate. It'll have witnesses. Uh, so everything will be fair and just. And it, it appears from what Abraham says here that Abraham had this plan in mind all along. He had in mind this particular cave that he wanted. This is where he's been going with this. Verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. One commentator thinks that Ephron is literally offering, at this point in the negotiations, he's literally offering the whole thing as a gift, gratis. Uh, not just the cave, but also the field where it is. Um, this will make Ephraim look good in front of everybody. Uh, it would also place Abraham in his debt and uh, sort of make Abraham permanently obligated to him in some way, perhaps. And some think this offer of Ephraim's was, was designed to make Abraham drop his pursuit of owning something. Um, so he wouldn't actually buy something that someone would... Someone would just gift this thing to him, but he still wouldn't really own property, as it were. Uh, we can't know all this for certain. But Abraham then responds to Ephron. He bows down before the people of the land, verse 12. 
He said to Ephraim in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephraim answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Here's where the culture comes in again. Ephraim sounds nonchalant talking about the price, but the fact is the price is, is all important. <laughs> um, he's acting as if the price of the field does not matter. It's really just the opposite. And Ephraim is making sure Abraham knows what this thing will cost. And that's a subtle way of, of politely talking about cost, the price. And um, it seems, it's hard, it's hard if you compare this with other scriptures, uh, other amounts of money, um, because of how uh, values of, of silver and stuff changed over time, it's hard to know exactly how much this was, that Ephraim suggested as a price. <clears throat> but uh, most people think he's either vastly overpricing the field, or he's at least offering... Uh, a very expensive field at the market rate. He's not getting the discount at all. Um, it says 400 shekels of silver. That seems like quite a lot for that. Uh, maybe he's still trying to discourage Abraham from actually buying it. But if that's what he's doing, Abraham actually ca- sort of calls his bluff and says, okay, here's the silver. Let's weigh it out. Let's do this. <laughs> Uh, no further haggling. <clears throat> Abraham weighs out the silver on the spot. In the hear- um, according to what Ephron had said the price would be in the hearing of everyone around, the Hethites, it says. Uh, so now Ephron's obligated to take the sum that Abraham offered because Ephron said that would be the price. Verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. You know, we had seen back in chapter 21 the first instance of Abraham sort of owning something in the promised land because he had dug a well himself. And then there had been this dispute over who had the water rights. And in the end, the, uh, the Philistines and Abimelech had acknowledged that Abraham had dug that well. It belonged to him. Abraham also planted a tamarisk tree there. And so that was one sort of what we called a, um, a deposit on uh, God's full promise that the whole land would one day belong to Abraham. Now here again, this time because Abraham, not because Abraham dug a well, but here because Abraham bought something. Here now he has another tiny plot of land that's really his, finally. <laughs> He's a sojourner, but now he has this burial spot. And so this leads to verses 17 through 20, where Abraham buries Sarah in the cave. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. That whole section reads almost like a a legal document in its thoroughness. 
Uh, maybe it's just quoting the document. Who knows? Here's what Richard Belcher says about this chapter and its significance. He says, Genesis 23 demonstrates Abraham's commitment to the land of Canaan because he does not take Sarah back to Haran to bury her. Ancestral burial grounds were very important because burial in, in ancestral graves indicated honor and continuity with the family. Abraham has broken ties with his family and pagan background because of his commitment to Yahweh, the Lord. He also demonstrates faith in the promise of God that his descendants will one day possess the land of Canaan. His actions demonstrate his hope for the future. He may only own a cave and a field, but he knows one day the whole land will be given to his descendants. Abraham received a down payment of his inheritance. We will come later to some later texts from Genesis that emphasize the importance of this cave, that not only was Sarah buried in the cave of Machpelah, it became the the family burial spot for most of them. Abraham was buried there. Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Leah, they were all buried in that cave. And it was like a, uh, a big uh, a sign with, with glowing lights. <laughs> um, it was a big symbol that God promised us this land, and here is where we will die and be buried. We have broken ties with the land God told us to leave, and the family and the pagan background. We belong to God in this new land, even though we can't see it as ours yet. We don't have physical possession of it yet. And yet, this is the promised land. This is our inheritance from God. And we have faith that God's promises will stand, that he will bring our family back from Egypt into this land. We'll get back around to all that a little later. <clears throat> but let's, let's go now to applications of Genesis 23. These three applications may seem, especially starting with the first one, may seem a bit simple, but I think they are profound if you think about them. First of all, and this is maybe just me getting a running start into the more direct applications. First of all, even God's elect people die. Another way to say it is absolutely everyone dies and every, absolutely everyone has to deal with death. It has to face up to it. And some of you sitting here are, by human standards, pretty young still. And this seems very far off for you. It may be in terms of your total lifespan. It may not be. But let me remind you what Ecclesiastes 12 says to you. Verses 1 through 7. And it pictures the deteriorating human condition in this life as a, almost like a city. Uh, a city that's getting run down. <laughs> and things aren't working right anymore. But it says, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. For you can't see well anymore. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. 
<clears throat> Bones, muscles, teeth aren't working as well anymore. And those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors in the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. Your hearing is off. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. You're getting gray hair. The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Let's say you live 90 years, 100 years. That time will pass very quickly. You will blink and it'll be here. And you'll say, how did I get here? How do my body parts not work anymore? Why do I have these strange pains? Why can't I see well or hear well anymore if you live long enough? Etc., etc. But that's just the prelude. Because what comes after that? You die. Your soul and your body, if Jesus does not come first, your soul and your body will be ripped from each other. And you have to face up to that. Death is something that we all face. No exceptions. As I said, unless the resurrection comes first and then we who are living in Christ will not see death. But you must reckon with death. Even God's elect people die. Even Sarah, the mother of the promised seed, whom God gave such great faith, she didn't get out of death. She just follows the pattern of Genesis. Those genealogies. So and so, sometimes in the patriarchal days, they lived 900 years. But the next phrase is, and he died. And that'll be true of you as much as it's true of anyone. Even God's very elect. You cannot get out of it. So when you see a funeral, when you go to the house of mourning, don't try to avoid the topic. Don't be like so many people in the world who are just so uncomfortable that they, they can't face it. They don't want to talk about it sometimes. There's such tension in the air sometimes. I've, I've mentioned before, I don't want to make this about me, but I, I have worked part-time at a funeral home before. And sometimes there's such tension in the air when people have no way to deal with death because they're not right with God. Psalm 49, verse 7 says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. <clears throat> the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, 
Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. That is, worldly people act as if there is no grave for them. That's how they live. That's how they boast. But it's all a lie. That Psalm, 40, verse, chapter 49, verse um, 14 goes on to say, Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But here's the hope expressed by the godly facing death. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. That's the only hope. If you know that God will take you to himself in death. It's a wonderful hope, but it's the only one. And thus, those who belong to God, who've been chosen by him for salvation, who have come to him in repentant faith, faith in the Savior who took the sting of death away for them because he paid for their sins. Those people can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.38, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even death can't separate us from the, the love that purchased us at Calvary. But don't try to avoid the topic. That won't get you anywhere. It'll just leave you further unprepared on the day of death. Second application, and these aren't really separate, they're sort of stair steps. Even God's elect people die, but second, God's promises reach far beyond death. And in an Old Testament sort of way, in these types and shadows, you might say, this is what Abraham is demonstrating as he buries Sarah. When he faces death, in this case the death of his wife, He's still looking at God's promises that reach beyond death. And he's thinking of himself and his own upcoming death, where he will be buried. And in this way, in this context, he's saying, I'm going to, I'm going to not lose sight of God's promises because they go beyond death. And for us, it's true as well. God's promises reach far beyond death. But again, listen to what Hebrews 11 says about Abraham and Sarah and people like him. Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. 
which makes it clear the point was not even ultimately Canaan. Canaan was a picture of something even greater, of the heavenly country. Therefore, it says, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then at the end of chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 39, it says, And all these heroes of the faith, all these, though commended to their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. But then it goes into talking about how now Jesus has come And now we approach with eyes wide open the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, as well as the spirits of these righteous people made perfect. And yet, we're not glorified yet. We haven't reached that heavenly city yet. And so Hebrews 13 tells us in verse 14 that here on earth we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So God's promises reach far beyond death, and they're very specific promises. If you are in covenant with God through the work of his Son, it's not some hazy, vague promise that you're going to be okay in the next life. No, it's far better than that. You have a homeland where you will truly belong forever. You have a city where you will be a first-class citizen forever. And it'll all be made especially for Jesus and for all those in him, including you, with you specifically in mind. No longer will you be an exile who doesn't really belong here in a culture that doesn't fit your God. You'll belong. But that's on the other side of death for most of us. Maybe all of us. You need to know that God will claim you as his own because you have made him your own through faith. God's promises reach far beyond death. And so, lastly, God's people can bank on their eternal inheritance. It's not enough to know about this inheritance. You you can and you should bank on it. Invest in that future. Rearrange your life so it's not about an inheritance you think you'll get on this earth. Some money you might come into. Some good situation you're hoping for at your job or in your family. No, your whole life if you really believe this, should not be about this stuff that's going to be gone when you blink. It should be about the world and the inheritance to come. In view of death, we find the patriarchs in Genesis banking on a promised inheritance that would come after their death. Even in death, they decided to stake their claim on the inheritance God had promised them. You ask Abraham or his sons, Isaac or or Jacob, was it worth it being so faithful to God even when you were severely tested? Was it worth it? You're still going to die. You still don't have a homeland. Was it worth it? They'd say absolutely. Because God's promises haven't failed and they won't fail. It's just that the full fulfillment of those promises are on the other side of death for me. 
Genesis 49, verse 29, we find Jacob, Abraham's grandson, facing his death. It says, Then he, Jacob, commanded his sons, his twelve sons, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. Now, is this just sentimentality? I've known people that are just very sentimental about a family burial plot. I want to be laid to rest beside my loved ones. Sometimes there's almost a pagan feel like maybe we'll be aware that we're lying there beside each other. Is that what this is? No. I think we get more light on this when then Jacob's son Joseph also speaks of his death. The point here is, is not sentimentality. The point is God's promise of the land, the inheritance. Genesis 50, verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, the land of Egypt, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph, at long last, would be buried in the land of promise. He was taking his claim on that land. And look, Joseph had prestige. I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but it'll be a long time before we get there in Genesis, so I can say it again. Joseph had prestige in the land of Egypt. He had everything he could want. He was Pharaoh's right-hand man. But Egypt was not what he ultimately identified with. It was the land of promise. It was God's promises to his family. That's what mattered most to him. Because he was about to die. He couldn't take all his Egyptian prestige with him in death. The pharaohs might have believed that with their pyramids, but Joseph didn't believe that. But what reached beyond death? God's promises. Now that Jesus Christ has come to fulfill God's promises, we know even more than the patriarchs about our eternal inheritance, don't we? It was pretty dim and shadowy for them compared to us. But we must still bank on it. How do you bank on it? First of all, obviously, we must embrace Jesus Christ, who is the way to the Father and to eternal life, who is the truth about this eternal life, and who is the life. You have to have Jesus Christ and embrace him and surrender your whole life to him. Asking him to cleanse you by his blood that he shed for sinners. Take away your sins in God's sight and to make you a new person as well. John 11, verse 25, when Jesus was at the grave of his friend Lazarus, he said to Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, again, this this is the sort of belief that entrusts your very soul to Jesus, not just knowing about him, 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That is, yes, your body and spirit will be parted for a time. But who you are on the inside, your spirit will never die, will never face God's wrath in the next life. And in fact, you will receive the resurrection if you have Jesus, because he is the resurrection and the life. And Jesus ends saying, do you believe this? Well, if we have believed in Christ, let's live like it and die like it. For one thing, we shouldn't fear suffering in this life for Christ. Of course, there's a whole spectrum of suffering, right? It could be just a little discomfort for Christ. All the way to dying for Christ and everything in between. But we should fear none of that. But realize that it's nothing compared to our inheritance. <clears throat> Paul in Romans 8.16 says that the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we have an inheritance. We're heirs. And then he says... For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What's Paul saying? He's saying, we, and not just us, but actually all of creation, is groaning, moaning, longing for the day when we will all be set free from sin and death, and from the corruption that comes with it. And what are we specifically awaiting as God's people? We're waiting for adoption day, a sort of a, a public adoption day, when we will experience, it says, the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection. One day we'll receive new bodies that will always be new, that will be eternal. And we will receive the full inheritance in eternal life. And if you think about that, a life that is truly eternal and glorious as the heirs of God and the fellow heirs of Christ, nothing can be compared to that. Nothing could be so bad in this life that it even dims that glory. So we shouldn't, it's, it's completely unreasonable for us to fear suffering for Christ in this life because we know it'll all be completely forgotten, as it were, in the glory that will swallow it up. But getting very practical, uh, two more ways in which I'm using this application. How do you bank on our inheritance? Well, we have to be done with sin and become like Christ, whose glories are eternal. 
We have to be done with sin because you know what won't last past the grave? Sin. And all your sinful desires, they're very temporary. So you need to put them off. You need to be done with them. Colossians 3, verse 1, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Next verse. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What is he talking about? Sexual immorality. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Further down in the text, he says what to put on. You put on things that are Christ's eternal glories. You put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Then he talks about forgiveness and love and the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts and thankfulness, etc. Or the way Galatians 5 puts it, there are the works of the flesh which are evident and then there's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it says those who do the works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things will last. And those things will be honored in eternity. Let's take this one step further. We'll be done. If we're being conformed in our character to the righteousness that will outlast this world then we will not hesitate to invest our possessions in those things that will reach beyond the grave. Now, you have to have what we already talked about first. You shouldn't just say, well, I'll, I'll give money to all sorts of good causes or something and keep my heart to myself. No. First of all, you must be conformed in your heart to the values that are eternal, to the God of eternity. But then, once that's true... You won't hesitate to use your stuff for things that aren't about the here and now. It's about stuff that reaches beyond the grave. Galatians 6, verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, he's been talking about the works of the flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, especially in eternity, he's saying, if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Whatever you do, that is truly good in Christ's name for anyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, that will last beyond the grave. As Jesus said in Luke 16, 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, 
so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. How zealous are you to support our missionaries? Who give the gospel to people who otherwise would never hear it, probably. How zealous are you for the work of Christ's church? With your stuff. How zealous are you to use your home to open it up to people, to draw them into Christ's love? There's so many applications I could make here, obviously. But Matthew 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or 1 Timothy 6, and with this I'm done. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For, because we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, which fits most of us, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See how this is such a huge topic once we open it up. Is your heart set on eternity and on God's promises? Or is it not? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, in whom all your promises to us are yes and amen. May no one here reject Jesus Christ and thus judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. We, we can say all that you've told us to say, and yet, Father, you must open the hearts of the unbelieving so that they will repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. So we ask you to do that, Father. And for those of us who have believed in Jesus, help us to be consistent with our profession, more and more consistent. Help us to live for eternity and not for things that will soon pass away. And give us confidence both now and in the day of our death because to have Christ is to have the resurrection and the life and to have life that's truly life. We pray this in his name. Amen.